All right, Hebrews 20.20. We see Jesus. This is increment 83. And in today's increment of Hebrews, I want to deploy two theological functional specialties, namely history and dialectics. And that's going to be with a view to a third theological functional specialty called interpretation. And I think you'll see how this unfolds as we go. This is going to deal primarily with Hebrews in its totality. And in, second, in the second place with Hebrews 13 verses 9 and 10 which will figure prominently in this message and possibly in another one down the road. So, Father, we thank you, and once again, we're grateful that you are very present to us as a help in time of need. Our time of need now is for you to grant us enlightenment and enablement to understand, to receive insights, and give us the courage and the patience to remain with those insights and not to retreat from them. Build true hearts, Father, that are truly brave hearts in our time. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. In this increment of our theological exegesis, as I said, we'll be employing history as a way of getting to the truth of Hebrews, dialectics, which is a way to engage for example, to engage with previous commentators or other scholars, both ancient, modern, and current, in order to, through a collaboration of efforts, get to the heart and the kernel and the meaning of Hebrews and to its application to believers in our own time, to people in our own time. Decades ago, when I first heard teaching on Hebrews while in Bible college, and then when I first read exegetical commentaries on Hebrews, the teachers and commentators that I read and to whom I was exposed expounded the theory that the author was addressing a tendency of his readers to return or to revert, perhaps is a better word, to practices of Judaism, including offering of animal sacrifices and the rituals and feast days that pertained thereto, and that they were tempted to revert to those practices after having been enlightened about the finished work of Christ. Now, I'll use the word, the finished work of Christ, as a kind of a code and a kind of an abbreviated name for the once and for all and forever self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God at the juncture of the ages, by which he removed sin once and for all. So the finished work of Christ will be our code word for this, and FWC for note-takers, perhaps. The author addressed this in order to dissuade them from a course of action by reminding them vehemently at times, sometimes by putting literally the fear of God in them, like in Hebrews 10.30 and 31, to remind them of the superiority of Christ and his once and for all and forever self-sacrifice, which among other things did away with 
the need of offering the old animal sacrifices. Since that time, decades ago, I've read many more commentaries and commentators, and I've done much more research by the grace of God who allowed me the time and a good congregation that allowed me to do this, much more research on the New Testament in general and in Hebrews in particular. In this research, I discovered a decided movement away from that original theory, the theory that the readers were under a severe pull to revert to the old order practices. And they kind of pulled me away from that theory for a little bit. Much of that movement was based on research. Much of the movement that goes against that, here's the dialectic. There is that theory. There is a research movement, a movement of commentators against that theory. There's the two dialectic points of view and the two dialectic poles, if you will. So in the research more recently, I discovered a movement away from that original theory And much of that movement was based on research into the profound influence of Judaism on Christianity and the profound significance of Israel to the church. And I heartily endorse this research, completely agree with it. You cannot argue that the root bears us as Romans says, and that salvation comes from the Jews, and that there is this thing called the Israel of God, emphatically. And I think one of the faults of dispensationalism is that they don't understand that reality. The doctrines of replacement theology, for example, ought to be reproved, for they teach or imply that Israel has been cast aside in favor of the church. When in fact, the church is a continuity of Israel, true Israel. Anti-Jewish sentiment, also known as anti-Semitism, must also be constantly guarded against in our interpretation of the scripture. Especially now, I'm speaking as a 21st century person, with the toxic root of anti-Semitism growing in areas across the world, of course in the Middle East, in the Far East, in China, and in the European Union, various places, and in our United States government, anti-Semitism is rearing its ugly head. And so we have to be allowing None of this to seep into biblical interpretation. Biblical interpretation must never allow even the slightest tinge or suggestion of anti-Jewish sentiment. I have also detected a very strong sensitivity and an admirable one to the Jewish people and the Jewish heritage in the wake of Auschwitz. Now, Auschwitz was not only a camp of horror, but it's kind of a code name for the unspeakable holocaust of the Jews of the last century. So, sensitivity is demanded. One can sympathize, therefore, with Christian commentators and their repulsion against sounding in any way 
negative toward Judaism or of the practices of holy days, rituals, sacrifices, etc. of the Jewish people. So I get that. Now by dialectics as a theological functional specialty, I mean that we ought to engage those who reject that theory, the theory that there was a, an apostasy or an impending apostasy of Christians returning to the practices of the old order in Judaism, we ought to engage those who reject that theory, and I think it's time to rethink that theory in the light of what we might call pro-Semitism, where we're not against any religion or any expression of piety per se, for that matter, on the one hand, but on the other hand, we cannot take flight from the insight that the once and for all and forever self-sacrifice of Christ to put away sin has made the service of the earthly tabernacle redundant or superfluous at the very least and sinful at the very most when in fact those who have had the insight of the finished work of Christ return to it. So the only sinfulness found in a return to those animal sacrifices and the practices of the altar of the earthly tabernacle, as Hebrews is going to call it, the only sinfulness is in the Christians who flee from the inside of the finished work of Christ to practice those things in order to avoid social stigma and possible persecution. Now, again, the self-sacrifice of Christ to put away sin has made the service of the earthly tabernacle redundant at the very least, and sinful at the very most, when in fact those who have had the inside of the finished work of Christ return to those sacrifices and practices in order to avoid social shame and ostracism. So adding history to the mix of dialectics here, as we've done with the fact that the Jewish religion enjoyed protection from the Roman Empire at the time, we can see an increased temptation for Christians for whom there was no protection to revert to the practices of Judaism, including circumcision, which was an issue in Galatia and the churches in Galatia, to avoid the stigma and to avoid persecution and to come under the protection of the Roman Empire. We can see that the temptation is strong. We can also see that this is several decades out from the finished work of Christ. Perhaps it's in the 60s. They had already experienced persecution, some of these people. They had already experienced the confiscation of their property. They would already experienced being what we would call today canceled, doxxed, ghosted, trolled, and shamed socially. And so they were getting worn down a little bit when they foresaw another wave of this. You can see why a homily addressed to them at that time would be perfectly timed by God the Holy Spirit. And that's emphatic in verses we just looked at. Today, when you hear the Holy Spirit, today, 
as the Holy Spirit says. When you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. So adding history to the mix of dialectics, we know that the Jewish religion enjoyed protection from the Roman Empire at the time. Therefore, our dialectic gains a head of steam. In fact, the theory that the readers or hearers of this homily were being prevented from returning to those practices ought to be given new consideration, especially since this theory reasonably pans out throughout the entire epistle. In other words, in my view, there are passages like Hebrews 6, 4 through 8, Hebrews 10, 26 to 31, Hebrews 13, 9 and 10, which we're going to look at a little bit, or at least glance at the, a paraphrase of it, that only makes sense if in fact the readers were Christians once enlightened and tempted to return to the practices of Judaism for whatever reason, the main reason being to avoid social ostracism. Now, a large section of this epistle consists of the area between Hebrews 3.7 to 4.13. I'm, I'm trying to bring in a lot of things. My arms are around a lot of themes right now to the point where it takes supernatural concentration to keep them together. And I mean that literally. A, a large section is Hebrews 3.7 to 4.13. I only see a section. I only see the structure of Hebrews from going through it and looking back, from backward view. I don't accept anybody who's already done a structure of Hebrews and accept their thing on it. I'd rather go through it myself and turn around and see how it's divided into sections. There's a noticeable section between 3.7 to 4.13, and the theme of the heart, cardia, is in the beginning of that section and, again, at the end. And when a theme is prominent at the beginning and the end of a series of paragraphs, then you can kind of see that the heart is under steady scrutiny throughout that section. And therefore, that section is marked by the theme of the heart. In fact, Hebrews 4.12, at the other end of a section beginning with 3.7, likens the word of God to the sharpest of two-edged swords. And listen carefully describes it as alive and operational as a judge or critic of the thoughts and intents of the heart. What is the content of the human heart? The human intentional, rational consciousness. We could actually define the heart as the intentional, rational consciousness of a human being. The levels of the heart, which we've been studying, and that's one of the most important studies I've ever engaged in as a pastor, is the five levels of the intentional consciousness of human beings. It's kind of a psychological study, but it's more a biblical study or a biblical psychology. Hebrews 4.3, or 4.13 rather, reveals that there is no rational, volitional created being who's hidden from God's sight, but is entirely out in the open before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Notice again that it's a judge of the thoughts and intents. What if you have a thought? Well, if I went back to those practices, I could still be a Christian, but I would also enjoy the protection of the Roman Empire. And so you begin to have what Jesus called evil rationalizations that proceed from the heart. That thought may be followed up by the intent 
to return. And I think this pastor, this PT, has caught this group right between the thought to revert to those practices and the intent to revert to those practices. And so that's why the levels of the human consciousness, in fact, the levels of the human consciousness are the heart. The heart is those levels of human consciousness, especially levels two through five. One is a level of experience, uh, which can include just auditory, visual, tactile, not tactical, like I said in one of the messages previously, tactile, the experience of touch. But two through five are levels of rational intentionality. Now, I don't want to get too fancy with that and sound like Freud. I'd rather sound like this PT. But the thoughts and intents of the heart are on the second to the fifth levels of human consciousness. The levels of human consciousness contain thoughts and intents. That's Hebrews 4.12. Thoughts that include inquiry, reflection, and deliberation. Intentions, including decisions leading to actions. The human heart is rational and intentional. You can, with the heart, be attentive. With the heart, you can be intelligent. With the heart, you can be reasonable or rational. With the heart, you can be responsible. With the heart, most of all, you can be in love. That's on the top of the fourth level of human consciousness. And then on the fifth level, it becomes interpersonal, intersubjective. That's when we begin to be concerned not just about our own best interests, but with the best interests of others. Others more specifically right around us, but then it extends into others in terms of all humankind. The levels of human consciousness, again, contain thoughts and intents. The human heart is rational and intentional. The second to fifth levels of human consciousness are rational and intentional. Those levels of the heart of which the, are, are which the scripture speaks about as the heart itself, the thoughts and intents of the heart. The heart is still a major theme of Hebrews, not just from 3.7 to 4.12 and 13, however, because all the way to 13.9, that's a verse that keeps jumping out in my top level of my consciousness. The heart is still a major theme all the way into Hebrews 13.9, where it says that, paraphrasing, it's a good thing that the heart be established by grace. Now, this is important because in my view, it is God's intent in our own time to build a community of intersubjective lovers of God and lovers of one another whose hearts are governed by grace and established in grace. And this is the kind of community that expands through a network of loving relationships rather than hard evangelism or what we used to call blitzkrieging people with the gospel. So... Once again, it's a good thing that the heart be established by grace and not by rules having to do with foods. Not with foods is literally what it says. And he adds then, 
in 1310, which is also extremely important in our time, that we have an altar from which those who serve in the earthly tabernacle have no right or no freedom to eat. Now, this is, I'm going to explain this and explicate this down the road, no doubt. But for now, it's important to recognize that what God intends is the heart, the five levels of consciousness, especially the top four, especially the fifth, be established in grace. When the fifth level of consciousness is established in grace, then you have a collective community of grace-oriented believers who are not dominated by the sin-hijacked law. They live in, again, and I can't help suggesting this in anticipation, the New Jerusalem, the Uranopolis. They are Uranopolitan in their thinking, Uranopolitan. They are cosmopolitan, but the cosmos is the city of New Jerusalem. And they do this, they have this citizenship and demonstrate this citizenship right now on earth and that's how the will of God gets done on earth as it is in heaven. See, I'm anticipating, however. But there are several observations that we have to note from Hebrews 13, 9 to 10. I'm trying to anchor all of this right into the exegesis of the scriptures. We're doing a theological exegesis. Here's some several observations, four anyways, from Hebrews 13, 9 to 10. First, those who serve at the earthly tabernacle are the priests of the old order. Because the verb for to serve, latruo, is in the present participle in that passage, it can at least be considered that though there is no longer need for this service because of the once and for all and forever self-sacrifice of Christ, the Lamb of God, there were still sacrifices being offered at the time of the writing of this letter, this epistle, this sermon in an epistle. In other words, the writer is talking about priests that are doing something and continually doing something as he writes. And as they receive the letter, there's still an ongoing, at least the implication, that what's ongoing is there are priests that are serving the earthly tabernacle, meaning, implying, that A.D. 70 hasn't come, that destruction of the temple hasn't occurred yet, the sacrifices are continuing, and it's in the present participle. It's happening now. So, again, that emphasizes the need to reprove the intention to go back and go under that system again because it's an earthly tabernacle, but we don't serve an earthly tent, a tent made with hands. We are a priesthood, but we serve at an altar that is heavenly, that is in the heavenlies, and in Hebrews 9.11 it says, is not of this creation. It's not even of this creation. So the first observation the writer does not speak negatively of this per se, these sacrifices, or of Judaism. But it's evident that this ongoing service of the earthly tabernacle made with human hands is ongoing because of the lack of enlightenment on the part of the priests. The priests, some priests did believe when Jesus was cried out, it's finished, the great curtain in the tabernacle and the temple was torn from top to bottom. A lot of priests believe, according to Acts 6, 
but a lot of priests didn't. The ones that didn't, didn't have the enlightenment. They didn't see what had happened in Christ, so they kept on practicing these sacrifices, offering sacrifices. They even offered a daily sacrifice for the Caesar, not to the Caesar, but for the Caesar, and that's what kept them under, under the Roman protection. The second observation from this in Hebrews 13, 9 to 10, is the idea of the heart being established by grace rather than by foods, which are the foods here in context are the meals eaten by the priests in association with those sacrifices, those animal sacrifices. And this correlates with Romans 14, 17, in which Paul says the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So there's a correlation, if you want to just do a simple correlation, between Hebrews 13, 9, and 10, and Romans 14, 17. The, the kingdom of God is, not is going to be. It is. It presently consists of righteousness, which is love in action, God's saving action in progress in love, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And the kingdom of God is not found in food and drink or laws governing dietary restrictions. Conflating these two verses, Romans 4.17, or two passages, Romans 14.17 and Hebrews 13.9 and 10, yields the insight that God intends that our hearts be under the governance of divine grace and that the kingdom of God itself is that governance of grace. And that makes me think of Romans 6.14. You will not be under the control of sin because you are under grace, not under the sin-hijacked law. The governance of grace destroys the control by sin of people. So God's intention is for an assembly. God's intention is for an assembly whose hearts are in solidarity under the governance of grace. Let me say that again because it indicates God's purpose for our time right now. God's intention is for an assembly whose hearts are in solidarity under the governance of grace. Under grace, we are not dominated by sin, Romans 6.14, as we would be under the law which sin has commandeered for its own nefarious purposes. Third observation on these passages, this Hebrews 13, 9 to 10, that we have an altar is a clear signification that we are priests, but not priests who serve at the altar of a tabernacle or literally the tent made with hands by human construction. We are priests of another order than that of Aaron. Now that we eat from that altar means that we have food to eat that the servers of the earthly tabernacle don't know anything about. Jesus said to his disciples, they said, you must be hungry now after evangelizing a whole city in Samaria. And he said, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. This is what this is referring to. The doing of the will of God is food to eat. It's satisfying. 
so that the tabernacle in which we serve the living God is a heavenly tabernacle not constructed with human hands like the earthly one. And again, I love this phrase in Hebrews 9, 11. It's not even of this creation. Not even of this creation. So we are a household of priests, as Revelation 1, 5 to 6 calls us, a kingdom of priests. The one who governs this household is not a priest after the order of Aaron through Levi, but an age-abiding priest after the order of a personage and a subject named Melchizedek, about which the PT that wrote Hebrews has a lot to say, and so do we. The fourth observation from Hebrews 13, 9 to 10 is that we eat from this altar refers to the feast that accompanies the Passover specifically. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7 to 8, Paul says, Our Passover lamb has been slaughtered. Our Paschal lamb has been slaughtered. So let's partake of the feast. The feast here is obviously not food, but a food that people don't know about in this creation. The feast of which we partake and the food which we have the freedom and authorization to eat includes love, joy, peace. It includes the patience, the fidelity, the goodness, the kindness that is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the self-control that is produced in those who have been enlightened as to the momentous significance of the once and for all self-sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb of God, the efficacy of which is dramatically demonstrated by God's leading him up from the dead in Hebrews 13.20, elevating him to the highest heaven in Hebrews 1.1-4, and seating him at the right side of his ineffable majesty until all his enemies are made a footrest for his feet. Psalm 110.1, Hebrews 1.13, etc. Now, those are four simple, basic observations. Now, if we link this up with the theme of entering into God's rest, which we left off with in Hebrews 3.11, this speaks to the even deeper interpretive question in Hebrews that was brought up in our intro today. Consider, and we're all over the map today, but consider Hebrews 4.1. And this is where I'm going to, I think, I think the next couple of minutes, the next few minutes are going to be very helpful to people. If you're like me, Hebrews 6.4-8 and Hebrews 10.26-31 scared the hell out of you before you had insight with regard to the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universally saving impact of his cross. I was scared to death because I didn't have that insight. The lack of insight keeps you in darkness. Darkness keeps you in fear, in guilt, in all kinds of things. It destroys your life, essentially. So as I said at the beginning, some commentators, both ancient and modern, have suggested or even insisted that the warning in Hebrews 6, 4 through 8, you know, if you're a Christian and been around long enough and read the Bible long enough, you hear me say Hebrews 6, 4 to 8, you start to tremble. It requires us when the warning in Hebrews 6, 4 to 8, as many said, and this really didn't help me as a baby Christian, 
they th said that that requires us to believe that there is a definitive moment of apostasy in which an individual enters a state from which they can never be restored again. Now, now, for about nine months of my life as a Christian, I'm only saying this because it has relevance, pertinence to this theme. I was so horrified that I had committed an unpardonable sin that it was impossible for me to be restored again to God. Imagine living with that knowledge, but you're afraid to take yourself out by suicide, for example, because you think you're going into the lake of fire. So you're living in a despair. There's no way out of this despair except when Jesus Christ intervenes, and he did, and thank God that he did. He intervenes with light and with insight and enlightenment. Thank God through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4.1 already appears to contradict that notion that there is a state you can get into from which you can't be restored. Hebrews 4.1, take heart, Christians. Take heart, new Christians. Take heart, desperate Christians. Hebrews 4.1 already appears to contradict that notion because there is essential, there it essentially states that no one should think that it's too late for them to enter into rest. Now, because God said, if they shall enter my rest, and it's interpreted like they're not going to enter my rest as long as they're unbelieving. If they shall enter my rest is admittedly an obscure phrase. It does not mean that there will be a time when God shuts the door and many are excluded. In fact, Hebrews 4.1, the pastor saying, hey, none of you should ever think it's too late for me. I've heard people say that. You don't know the evil I've done. You don't know the sins I've committed. You don't know what I've done. And it's too late for me. That's exactly what Hebrews 4.1 is saying, not to think that way. Get rid of that thought. The word of God in Hebrews 4.12 critiques that thought. Hebrews 4.1 contradicts the notion that there's a place from which we can never be restored to a repentance. And so not only does it imply on the one hand that those with an evil heart of unbelief will not enter his rest, on the other hand, the promise remains of entering into his rest. So a promise remains of entering into his rest, even though God told the majority of one generation, you're not going to enter my rest with the intention of you're not going to enter it as long as you're in an evil heart of unbelief. Thank God for Ephesians 4.13 when it says we're all going to come to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, and to the measure of the stature of human maturity that is Jesus Christ himself. The, so in other words... There exists the possibility... Even the probability, and if we understand USSJC, UICC, and you can follow up on that abbreviation, even the certainty of the conversion of unbelieving hearts. Saul of Tarsus, Paul the Apostle, test case. The kind of thinking that's being warned against in Hebrews 4.1 is called dokeo, D O. K-E-O, D-O-K-E-O. 
E-O, Omicron O, then Omega O, long O. Daketo, accent here. And in this case, Daketo means thinking rooted in supposition or subjective opinion or even presumption, which is a misapprehension. To regard something as presumably true, but without certainty, even something that seems to be true, but is not true in reality. That's what's being spoken of here. Doketo can be a judgment based on reflection, not on an insight, but on an oversight of insight. If someone has had the insight that I call USSJC, Universal Saving Significance of Jesus Christ, slash UICC, Universal Impact of the Cross of Christ, we could even say the Universal Saving Efficacy of the Cross of Christ, if you've had that insight, and that upon reflection the judgment was made that indeed Jesus has universally saving significance, and that his once and for all sacrifice on the cross has a redemptive reconciling, reconciling of impact on all of humanity in all of its times, if you've had that insight, then it would be impossible to conclude to the contrary or to suppose that anyone can be excluded from entering into his final rest. The exhortation here is for everyone, listen carefully, for everyone to be on watch Overwatch is even better. We'll hit that in a future message. So that no one thinks he or she has been or will be excluded. The impossibility of a restoration to repentance that Hebrews 6, 4 through 8 talks about does not mean that one can't ever be restored after apostasy or after sin or a season of sin. The work of God will continue to its completion on the day of Christ Jesus, according to Philippians 1.6. We keep on moving. If we've sinned, we acknowledge it and are assured of forgiveness based on Jesus' once and for all sin offering, that is, himself. If anyone sins, he may have an adversary in the accuser of the brethren. He may also have an adversary in his own warped conscience. But infinitely more important, he has an advocate, not an adversary. Jesus Christ, the righteous one for us, who is the expiation propitiation, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, we're ready to wind down on this particular increment. I think that the commentaries or commentators who see in Hebrews an if-then proposition are more on the scent of the prey here. I think they're more on the scent of our quarry. I'll say that again. I think commentators who see Hebrews as an if-then proposition are more on the scent. The idea is that as long as one is in effect re-crucifying the Son of God, that is, by publicly going back to offer sacrifices, animal sacrifices that are now rendered redundant, 
then if, as long as someone is doing that, in effect, re-crucifying the Son of God, then while doing that, it's impossible to restore one to the former position that was brought about by repentance. As long as one is doing that. But there's a thing called conversion. We should even reconsider against the trending consensus of commentators. Here we go again, against the consensus. We should even, I think, reconsider against the trending consensus of commentators that indeed the recipients of this homily may well have been considering a return to the practices of the old contract and the Levitical priesthood, the offering of animal sacrifices, ritual purification, etc. Not because they heartily endorsed that, but because they can avoid social stigma by doing that. So they rationalize it. See, it's what Jesus calls evil rationalizations in Mark 7, 21 to 22. There's much internal evidence to suggest, by internal evidence I mean evidence right within this epistle, that the priests were still offering sacrifices and that the temple in Jerusalem was still standing. There's a lot of wishy-washiness in commentators about this. Though not offering conclusive proof that the sacrifices were still being offered, nevertheless, there is a strong suggestion that they were because of the ongoing present tense in verses like Hebrews 9-7, where it says that the high priest alone enters the second room. That means enters, he's in a process of it. That thing's going on now. And Hebrews 10.11, where it says, Now every priest stands daily ministering and serving. Present tenses. Stands daily ministering and serving, bringing sacrifices which can never take away sins. In verses like these, there's an implication that these activities were still going on. Though we can't judge with finality that this is so because the present tenses could be also classed as what we call a vivid historical present tense, which captures past actions with a clear and present vividness. But in any case, I'm not ready to discard the theory that says some of the readers were on the verge of reverting to those rituals in order to come under the protection of Rome and the appropriation of the or the approbation and the approval of the old Jerusalem. The world system back then was SPQR slash IAF, a collusion of Sonatus Populusque Romanus, the Roman Empire, with Israel after the flesh, an apostate Jerusalem called Mystery Babylon, the mother of whores. And so to please the beast, which was the Roman Empire, and the whore, which was apostate Jerusalem at the time, and only at that time, they were tempted to go under the umbrella of the beast and the whore, just in terms of appearances, to get protection and avoid persecution. The Hebrew writer says, no way. That's not what you do. That's not it. There were no doubt getting weary, however, and you can sympathize with this. They were weary of social ostracism, being mocked, doxxed, trolled, canceled, shamed, and even beaten up sometimes in public. Anybody would get tired of that. 
So in closing, it's reasonable to interpret warning passages like Hebrews 6, 4 to 8 and Hebrews 10, 26 to 31 as saying in effect, and this is what it says in effect, so I'm paraphrasing what the whole epistle is essentially warning against. It is utterly impossible for one to be restored to one's former state, which one entered via repentance. As long as one is re-crucifying, in effect, the Son of God, putting him to open shame by reverting to the performance of ritual sacrifices, animal sacrifices, which one abandoned when one received the insight regarding the once and for all unrepeatable sacrifice of Christ. In fact, if we adopt this interpretive motif with the help of TFS history, theological functional specialty history, we can make sense of many things in Hebrews that would remain otherwise obscure. We have used exegesis along with the theological functional specialties of history and the engagement in dialectics with other scholars to come to a possible, even probable, interpretation of Hebrews, that the major thrust of its negative exhortation is to prevent the movement of the heart, the thoughts and intents of the heart, in the direction away from insight, back into darkness and away from the life and livingness that is to be had in the new creation with our eyes fixed on Jesus rather than backing off and backing up into destruction. The application to us right now, right here in the 21st century is clear, and here it is. We ought not back away and back off from the insights we have received, reflected upon, concluded, deliberated on, and made decisions based on, especially the insight of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, the universally redemptive, reconciling, and rectifying impact of his cross in order to let the love of Christ for all of humanity control us. So thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We pray that you'll allow us to see the purpose of Hebrews in these words, and more than that, allow us to see Jesus with the eyes of our heart, which is the theme of all of our teaching here. Amen.